there are known cave paintings dated at 80,000 years that depict hunting. That so, means that hunting is important in our DNA longer than anything else that has been recorded. We're going to talk about a topic that generates a considerable amount of controversy, hunting. I'm a hunter. I'm very pro-hunting. I'm very passionate about hunting. I have with me Stephen Palos. He's going to explain the organization that he represents and what that organization does and how it contributes positively towards hunting and conservation in South Africa. So, Stephen, tell me about Chaza. Hello, Martin. Chaza, yes, that's the Confederation of Hunting Associations of South Africa. We're an organization that acts as an umbrella body over 23 independent and quite diverse hunting associations representing probably in the region of 20,000 individual hunters in South Africa. And with that, a little bit of sport shooting as well because they are parallels. Now, Charza existed before the Firearms Control Act, but obviously it's had to fit in to the framework created by the Firearms Control Act and it also has to fit into the legislative framework that governs hunting in the various provinces. So is Chaza an accredited uh, body with the police? Yes, we are, Martin. We quite right. Chaza is now around about 37 years old, so it does predate the, the, the current legislation on firearms by quite a margin. So the hunting aspect is something that is our, let's say our main bread and butter business. But firearms is an essential given and a necessity for hunting. So, yes, we accredited in the early stages of the new Firearms Control Act to offer the dedicated status that is required in terms of Section 16 to offer more than four, four firearms for ownership and obviously to assist any member, whether he's a dedicated person or just a one firearm owner. We are very fair with all the, the necessary legislation so that we can assist. So a little birdie tells me as well that um, Charza has spread its wings in recent times and it's also become very much a body for lobbying firearm rights and it's also become very much involved in the Department of Environmental Affairs. So let's talk about the hunting, the pure hunting aspect first. What does Charza do? Let's have a look at our vision, which is in simple terms, our vision is the freedom to hunt. So in order to look after that vision, all of the various initiatives we put in place, it starts out with mostly advocacy work and lobbying where necessary. This entails engaging stakeholders, including government and policymakers. What about the anti-hunters? Indeed, they are a, a major issue, for want of a better word. And in many cases, we will do educational work, hopefully to those anti-hunters, to get them to see the error of their ways. But in many cases, to the general public, in order to counter the effects of anti-hunting. Now, I'm a hunter, so I understand the desire to hunt, and I understand the process of hunting. What makes people want to hunt? Martin, we've been hunting a lot longer than we've been doing anything else socially as humans. If you look at, for example, agriculture dates back around about 11,000, 12,000 years in our history as, as mankind. I think the dog was essentially domesticated, or for want of a better word, about 15,000 years ago. Yet there are known cave paintings dated at 80,000 years that depict hunting. That so means that hunting is important in our DNA longer than anything else that has been recorded. So it's, 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 it's within us. We are hunters. We are built as hunters. Ours are forward-facing. Uh, we are predators by nature. It's obviously been bred out of us in modern times and urbanization, but right down in our inner souls, that's what we are. And in every person's history, 
there is successful hunters in their pedigree. How do we translate that impulse, that innate capacity into hunting within the framework that we have in South Africa? What happens? What do you need to do? Well, the first thing is obviously if somebody has an inclination or a desire to hunt in South Africa. Unfortunately, our, our recent history, the apartheid era, actually denied hunting to the vast majority of our population. And the reality is hunting is something that is so ingrained in our culture that it's really handed down. It's not a sport like golf or soccer that you decide one day I want to go do that thing. Invariably, it's handed down from father to son, and it's very ingrained in the family makeup. So if you are now sitting having never hunted in your family history, and you suddenly are tickled by this activity and want to know a bit more about it, how do you start doing that? Well, unfortunately, because traditionally speaking, that would have been a culture handed to you by your father, your grandfather, your uncle, we need to step in and replace that. Can I stop you there? Because what you're actually not saying is that hunting has not taken root in the black community. But it sounds that from 1994, maybe a little bit earlier, more and more black people are beginning to hunt within this framework. Do I understand what you're saying correctly? Yes, very much so. There is, in actual fact, quite a lot of black folk involved in the hunting routine, but Historically, they've really been service providers, workers on farms that have been exposed to it, people who've had some kind of fortune along their pedigree that they had some access to it. But unfortunately, the vast majority of urbanized black folk have had the denial that runs some generations now. And for them, unfortunately, the anti-hunting lobby has put a lot of stuff out there that has created uh, misnomers where they actually believe hunting is finishing up what is a finite resource and can only be a bad thing because the perception, they've been distanced from the concept of sustainable use. Now, I also know that we as hunters have had approaches from the Department of, of Environmental Affairs and we've been asked to assist black hunters. We've been asked to give resources to people that have had successful land claims and taken over farms to give resources in game management, in resource management. How does Charza fit into that context? How do hunters and hunting associations fit into that context? Well, we're a respected and quite liked stakeholder with our Department of Environmental Affairs because of the work that we have done and how we've engaged with them. We've been very fortunate in South Africa that our Department of Environmental Affairs absolutely recognizes the critical role hunting has done in order to generate the very successful wildlife uh, industry in, in South Africa. So I just want to stop you there. What you're saying is that we have a government department that sounds like it functions properly and that understands the overall dynamics of a particular industry. Martin, yeah, I suppose many listeners won't believe this particular statement, but absolutely the Department of Environmental Affairs has, to my mind, been a huge success, often an understated one in the other challenges we face in this country. And sadly, we lost Minister Edna Malewa last year. She passed away untimely. And I don't believe there's a person that we've ever had as a minister in the old or new regime that has understood the concept of sustainable use and the, and the benefit it brings to conservation of, of all manner of biodiversity, not just the animals that are hunted. So just to be clear, we need to give a strong congratulatory nod to DEA and say, well done, keep it up, you're doing the right thing. Certainly in terms of the, the, the wildlife uh, and biodiversity uh, department, 
uh, of the DEA. I'm very excited by their approach, always have been. And Charza, as a lobby pro-hunting organization, fits very neatly into the, the overall framework of how the department operates. And you've had success, from what it sounds, of not only lobbying but generating understanding of sustainable use, and you're going to explain sustainable use in a few moments, and in getting the department to understand the hunting industry as well. How did that happen? Well, it's a process. Government has structures in place, and we are very much a part of those structures. The Wildlife Forum in particular is the main catalyst to that, which is a coming together of the sector role players, ourselves, the ranching community, other hunting associations, the professional hunters, and some of these very niche uh, parts of the wildlife sector. And that also brings the provinces. And there I must add there are challenges at the provincial level. While I'm actually giving a big shout out to the national department, there have been quite big challenges at the provincial department level. Most of them are starting to look a lot better. The provinces are coming on board too now because they're seeing the benefits and the benefits are real benefits to local population, benefits to to communities and people and very much transformative. So now we're on the pro hunting aspect. What we know is that Charza is dynamic in that environment. It promotes a particular perspective. You're talking about benefits to communities and you're talking about sustainable use. What is sustainable use? Well, sustainable use is essentially very simple English. You can use the resource base on an ongoing basis without depleting the resource base. So it means that you can shoot animals as long as those animals retain the capacity to regenerate themselves. May I give you an interesting contrast? We sit with a scenario where Western countries, wealthy Western countries, come into Africa and invest a lot of money in something like mining, for example. That's a finite resource. When that resource is depleted, it's gone. Nothing is, is replacing the gold, the copper. And, the, and it leaves massive That's a envi- finite resource with environmental impacts damage. that are massive yes, yes. and human impacts that are very big because of that. But take a herd of buffalo. You can harvest from that herd of buffalo on an ongoing basis. You can harvest from any species on an ongoing basis. No different to harvesting domestic livestock for the production of commercial meat. That is sustainable use. I just want to stop you there because this is a very important message. I understand it, but we need people listening to understand it. You harvest an animal. So you kill an animal, but it's subject to that particular group of animals being able to continue breeding and replace themselves. So you're taking a resource out, but without endangering its ongoing sustainability. You're taking the production of the resource. So the resource remains... And in actual fact, we have the science, we have the knowledge. In fact, South Africa, this is one area where South Africa is an absolute world leader. Our wildlife ranching sector, which has evolved in about four decades. I remember as a youngster driving with my parents on holidays where we would be incredibly impressed to see something like a meerkat on the side of the road because the uh, monoculture type agriculture in our country had depleted a lot of the natural biodiversity. And then certain factors in the 1960s started the process and it, it gained momentum. Game started having that a value. started to give value to game. Hunting was the underlying value giver. Farms started to convert from this monoculture agricultural uh, basis and the, the evolution of the game farming sector started. And now when you drive in the country districts, it's not unusual to see what was once very rare species. In number terms, 
there was an estimated half a million odd major game species in Afri- in South Africa in the 60s. It's now estimated to be scratching 20 million. So we're farming animals. Well, let's not touch on the farming animals thing because this is is not this is not like farming chickens or pigs. So but we're, we're, gro- we're growing animals as a resource. Yeah. And in using that resource, we're not endangering the resource. Hell, it sounds like a wonderful business model to me. It's it's good business for for the for the landowner, whether that landowner is an individual farmer or whether it's a community that has possibly got some land back. And my next question is: You mentioned mining, and what jumps to my mind is there can't be much environmental impact on growing animals. Well, when you start dealing with, let's say, expanding the popular animals for hunting on a piece of real estate. All the other natural biodiversity that is challenged by activities such as uh, typical agriculture start to come back as well because you're now using far less chemicals. So let me stop you there because, again, we need everyone to understand this. Does grass grow? And and the right grass is in the right balance. So, again, that's just a plus factor that if we take animals and put them back in their natural environment, then the positives are that it's a renewable resource. It results in land regeneration. It can result in the generation of income. We haven't even talked about food security, but I'm sure that's also an issue that would be topical. So it sounds to me like there are many, many positives about hunting that people who don't buy into the concept literally have no understanding of. I would say the return of 20 million hectares of South African agricultural land to wildlife space in the last three decades would tend to bear out what you're saying there is that this is exactly it. We are now having a wildlife estate that is productive, producing value for the owners, producing job uh, opportunities, better managing biodiversity. And on top of all of that, yes, food security as well, because there is probably the best way to produce protein on a per hectare basis, kilograms per hectare basis, is to use the animals that have adapted over eons to live on that environment. We live in a bad farming environment. Most of South Africa is is underproductive because of our weather patterns, our because soil types. Because of drought, lack of water. All of these things. And game deals with that properly because it's adapted to do so. So, again, what I understand you to be saying is if you've got sub-economic land or land that is marginal for farming activities, you can put game on that land. And game should thrive because it's adapted to those circumstances. And that means that land that had been farmed and become fallow because of bad farming practices or over farming can be rehabilitated by the introduction of game it's happened it's it's there it's already occurred uh, we are world leaders in it it's happening as a maybe for those in the urban environment that haven't paid attention they haven't seen it happening but it's been a quiet revolution over the last 30 odd years and uh, the animals are there the animals speak for themselves so what I understand from this is that Charza stands for the use of a sustainable resource. In other words, you can take it off, but it regenerates. At the same time, it rehabilitates land that may have been damaged due to previous bad practices, farming practices. You can add benefits to the landowner, and in certain instances, and this is something that environmental affairs, I think, is quite um, partial to, you can add benefits to communities. All of those things, and obviously as Charza, you, you mentioned what we stand for, is obviously for all of this to happen, hunting has to be able to take place. Hunting is a challenged activity. We are challenged because urban people don't generally understand it. Firearms is an essential component of hunting. That is misunderstood often and, and challenged. 
There are powerful forces at work, particularly on an international basis, to deny us these things. So Charles's role is to, again, come in and set the record straight, tell the story, tell the good story that it is all about as far as possible. And where there are challenges that have ulterior motives or, or, or uh, acting against us. You're talking about the, the bunny the, huggers, the animal well, writers. Let's, let's separate bunny huggers from animal writers. I don't have a problem with anybody that has a compassion for animals. Animal welfare is something we all believe in. So this is not about bunny huggers per se. So what's animal the, welfare? Looking after animals? That's it. So that type of thing is essential. That is, that is humanity. But there's a very devious but very misunderstood thing in the urban environment, the animal rightist dogma and the animal rightist regime. And that actually sits in two parts. There's commercial animal rightism because it's great business. And then there is a kind of a, how could you put it, a, a dogmatic approach to animal rights where it becomes a philosophy. So we as a firearm community have the same problem in that the anti-gun movement is a commercial movement because it raises funds from various sources. There's big money involved. The directors, employees, and so forth get paid big salaries to be anti-gun advocates. And you're saying that the animal rights movement is similar in the sense that they get big donations and they go and they forward an animal rights agendas, but they're doing it more for their own pocket than the benefit of animals. Exactly that. What happens is they parasite on the story to take money that should go to mainstream conservation. So what I would say to the public, always be very wary of people sitting in shopping centers with fanny lapels on their shirts, etc., telling you that they're there to save this, that, or the next thing. Because invariably, these are not mainstream conservation organizations that are putting boots on the ground to make a difference. They're, t they're taking the money and using it for a particular agenda and paying themselves in the process. Exactly that. Now, it doesn't sound very ethical, does it? Well, it's a problem we face on a long-going basis. If anybody had noticed Santon a couple of years ago when we hosted the CITES convention. What CITES? We need the to... Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. It's a mo supposed to be the body by which legitimate trade in, in species happens under a controlled manner. But it's an organization that has been hijacked by anti-hunting and animal rightist organizations, mostly as a showcase of their business, of their business model. So they spend the kind of capital there that small organizations like ourselves can only dream of having, and they put a big show on, and at the end of the day, no money ever um, finds its way back into on-the-ground conservation in Africa. So, so, in so we're, not empowering, we're not empowering communities. That, the animal rights do it for their own pocket, but they don't empower a community. They don't put back into that community. Martin, as an example… The organization IFOR, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and as I say, the welfare is a misnomer. They should call themselves the International Fund for Animal Rights, takes approximately 106, 110 million U.S. dollars a year from the public. That's a hell of a lot of money. It's a billion rand, more than. More than a billion, 1.5 billion Bigger rand. than some provincial game departments. Very, very budgets. big. When you actually start to look where they throw that money, it's all tokenism. The real money goes back into systems to keep themselves to self-sustain so i just want to be clear because what i want to hear about hunting and animal rights is that in some way these organizations empower a community they put resources into a community so that that community can use its resources animals are a resource do the animal rights organizations come along and say we're going to introduce game here we're going to let you breed with this game we're going to create a food source and you can take some off without endangering its sustainability do they do anything like that if you look at what animal rights organizations back as animals on the ground projects, almost all of them are relatively small rehabilitation centers where there's a high emotional attachment. 
There's nothing there that really is creating biodiversity and big habitat areas to sustain whole ecosystems. So, so they have a few showcase examples. They've got places, for example, where a bunch of lions or whatever that have been taken from circuses around the world are brought and put together to, to live out their old life. And then they make a big story with donation buttons, etc. attached to that. But it doesn't do nothing for conservation. biodiversity and conservation of lions. Not at all. Well, this is, I think this is an important point because the message I'm taking from this conversation so far is that what hunting does is it creates an environment where there is a, a complete cycle of good. That cycle is food, a renewable resource, regeneration of land, and empowerment of communities. And I think the empowerment of communities uh, is ongoing and it needs to be obviously expanded upon in many, many respects, but that's on the radar and it's happening. Whereas animal rights organizations come along and say, you can't, you don't, you won't. And they prescribe, they dictate. That's what I'm taking from this conversation so far. They will do their prescriptive moaning in, in the public space. They don't even really do anything to make that become effective because that would require an investment to actually they could easily for example come and buy up the land as opposition and say well we're going to create this preserve here and we're going to move hunting out of it so but they so can't do that they won't sustain that because that would be money out of their pockets so they could take a billion rand they could buy a whole bunch of game farms put in infrastructure they could breed animals and they can say we only want you to come take photographs of these animals because we don't want to kill them and you say that that won't work because it's not their model no they're not conservationists. They're certainly not conservationists. They're animal writers. Well, I think Yet they're also, more particularly, they are running a really good cash cow. So, again, for people listening, we need to be clear on this. An animal writer is not involved in, doesn't promote, or subscribe to conservation. That's the message. Well, they will say they do, but in reality they don't. That's the message. Now, my next question is, because hunting involves firearms, do these organizations these animal rights organizations so they have any coordination with the broader anti-firearm movement there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to say that anything that can be seized upon to create bigger challenges to firearm ownership will also be seized upon by animal rightism organizations so there's a crossover there's definitely a crossover and that crossover does it result in a coordinated approach to uh, animal rights and firearm ownership it sounds certainly to me that that is the case. Uh, certainly there is. I mean, we, we are a bit challenged in South Africa. In actual fact, it's firearm ownership that becomes, unfortunately, a bigger part of our workers' hunting organizations because we've got a peculiar and restrictive set of firearms legislation. So the biggest driver of our member base is their concern for firearms. Firearms ownership, which means that Charles has taken that lobby That's right. function. So we need to look after that aspect We've gone into animal rights and we, we haven't spoken about conservation. What I want to talk about is how does Charles, in terms of what it offers for its members, how does it fit into this framework created by the part of environmental affairs, by the Firearms Control Act, by Parliament? We haven't spoken about Parliament yet, but obviously as a lobby body, there's some interaction with parliamentarians, no doubt. Yes, absolutely. And as a result of that, Charles has a package, it has a set of values, it has a set of benefits that it can offer to someone that wants to become a member of a member organization. What do those organizations do? Well, from a member's perspective, if you are sitting now as a firearm owner and, and, and hunter, whether you're doing it already or you're an aspirant, 
joining any one of the, the 23 charter associations that are around the country, which you could find on our website, uh, there's a specific tab that lists the associations that fall under us. They would take you in and they would assist you with the necessary advice, training, etc., that you would need to become a, a proper, legitimate, and, and responsible hunter and so firearm owner. The structured activities. Structured activities. Training. And that would also then expand out to to some sports shooting activities that we do, which obviously hones your skills, either as a hunter or as a firearm user. And we do that across the board of all firearm classes as well. And then, of course, we are dealing with the aspects. We are constantly at the forums that government makes available to us and at forums with other stakeholders in order to constantly be looking at the regulatory and, and uh, legislation regime that we have to operate under. So we, we do attend, for example, portfolio committee meetings where there are appropriate uh, issues at so the police, police and, it and would be environmental affairs. When issues that are, are important to our affairs are being discussed at those committees and we are often adv- even invited to come and present um, because I think at this particular stage some of our inputs are, are quite highly valued. That leads to my next question and it's a bit of a – it's going to be a contentious question because it, it goes towards attitude and ethos of Charza versus other organizations. It's commonly known that other hunting organizations have taken a somewhat confrontational approach to government as being court cases, even as far as the constitutional court. And that has put that organization and possibly by implication or by association, other hunting associations in a box that is perceived by government to be confrontational, to not toe the line, to want to destabilize whatever government's policies are. How does Charza fit into that overall box? Are you in the confrontational box or are you a more subtle organization? How do you deal with the issues of the day? Thus far, we haven't really been confrontational. We've worked on the, on the approach of saying the policy makers should be engaged as far as possible. We get frustrated and, and not saying that all bets are off at this particular stage because there are issues sometimes when you get to a point and you start having to say to yourselves, but will nothing but a sledgehammer solve this problem? But we've noticed that's, that that's in respect of the police. In, I, <laughs> in respect, particularly of the police, yeah. and to a degree, even at some of the the officers above the police that should the, that should, in actual fact, be engaging us in good faith. We're not we are not coming to the table trying to to fight for something that is not warranted for us and our members. We are coming to the table to seek solutions for the so-called better life for all that this country is desperately needing. And again, hunting offers an opportunity, an avenue for a better life for all. What we haven't talked about is food security because it's a very topical subject matter right now because we've had a cycle of droughts, we've had fluctuating prices, and I know that there's been talk about how hunting can contribute to food security. What does it mean? How does hunting fit fit into food security Well, the bottom line is that protein gets produced on a piece of real estate by one means or another. Is it going to be intensive agriculture or is it going to be a natural process? If a well-managed but well-rounded game farm in a typical year, I'm not saying a particularly abundant or good year or a particularly bad drought year, but over an average period of cycles, generally speaking, your, your more common meat species uh, your herd animals and your, your such as your impalas and the, the like can probably be harvested sustainably at numbers of about 20 to 30 percent of their actual numbers on an ongoing basis without depleting the root stock. The right animals taken out by hunting. Hunting is very selective. You know exactly if you need to take X amount 
of female animals out. You need to take a couple of the redundant and old animals out. They often get sold at a premium for trophy hunting, which in itself gets a bad name because it's a misnomer. But it brings a premium, and you get a a few animals that are harvested out of the system. But the bottom line is the health of the herd, the health of the space carries on. But there's quite a big harvest coming off land that otherwise is not that productive. Let's talk about health. How healthy is game meat? Well, it's the lowest cholesterol meat that you can possibly eat. In in all instances, you're eating a truly organic product in that there is not chemicals used in it. Yes, at the intensive level of, of, of high-value game, they move animals around a bit, and they sometimes have to dose them and drug them to do that, but those animals are not the ones generally being hunted. So, you're eating an organic product that is low cholesterol and low fat. So that's two more positives to hunting. That doesn't seem to be passed on as a message to people who may be neutral about hunting or to people who may be anti-hunting. So we've got all the the benefits of the use of the land, the regeneration of the animals. But now we're into another topic entirely. That's health. And Mm. you're saying it's healthy. And most importantly, it's organic, which is one of the modern buzz phrases because we all want to eat organic all of a sudden. But if I want to go and buy organic, and I won't mention a chain store in particular – I'm going to pay a premium, and that comes to my next question, price. Is game meat more expensive or cheaper than beef or lamb or one of the other commercial products? Typically, if you look at it as as an own harvest, if you're a hunter, the meat itself probably comes in somewhere between the beef price uh, and the lamb price thereabouts once you've got it packed and stacked in your fridge and you take all those costs into account. You've got to add that there's an activity cost involved, which also contributes to the economy. So you're buying things to go hunting with. You're buying the, 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 the necessary equipment that goes with it. You might be spending a little bit on on the travel and the accommodation and the other factors as well. So those facts probably is more of an entertainment price. But the base price of the meat when you land it in your fridge is quite reasonable if you hunt in the right fashion, in the right places, and you're paying the right prices for your hunting. So there's an, so again, just to highlight the positives – there's an economic benefit as well overall. We're putting people in jobs. We are providing a social environment for the enjoyment of a family, yeah. and it's healthy and it's organic. The local meat hunter, well, the local hunter in South Africa, is contributing approximately 7 billion rand a year of economic activity directly. The direct job creation in rural areas where jobs are at their lowest is put at about 150,000 on the farms and in, in the rural areas. Interestingly, too, on a hunting farm, typically the job is at a higher level than an equivalent piece of real estate used for something like, for example, cattle or goat herding because the degree of skills and the degree of um, the quality of the work done is open, opens up a whole new opportunity for those workers. They have to be skilled to work with the incoming clients. They look after you. There's a bit of hospitality work involved in it. There's tips involved in it because of that. So it produces more jobs at a higher value on that same piece of ground. Now, I'm going to tell the listeners a quick story because I think this typifies what you're saying. Many years ago, there was a farm in Limpopo uh, owned by foreigners, and they decided that they would empower the local community. So each year they conducted a hunt that people paid to go on, and the farm owners took that money, and they said, we're not going to use that in the farm. We're going to build a school, going to put toilets in. We are going to use it to provide the educational necessities that school children in a rural area need. So they provided computers, fax machines. They solicited a lot of donations. And the end result is that over a period of years, this school that serviced the farm workers' children 
grew from nothing to a completely viable school. It was a it was a government school, but it had very little support from a government school. And the message that I take from that is that hunters are compassionate, that hunters understand the environment in which they operate. They understand that it is a cycle that is made up of themselves, the community, the land, and the animals. Do we have programs like that within the broader hunting community to take the benefits of hunting back to the communities? Do we have feeding schemes? Do we have anything like that where hunters contribute directly back to the communities? Martin, so many to mention. You've mentioned one example. If I tell you that I've been privileged in the work that I do, traveling around, meeting other stakeholders, going to the various charter associations around the country and to other stakeholders like the Professional Hunting Association, the Game Ranching Association, Wildlife Ranching SA, and meeting what folk are doing on the ground, it is beyond phenomenal what hunting directly is bringing to community benefits. I could mention a few issues by name specifically, but Be my guest. but uh, for example, recently I met a family that um, that that have a hunting operation down in the Eastern Cape. Tam T A M is the the surname. Very very passionate hunters, and they've started a thing. You you could probably Google it under the Amy Bell Foundation. If you look at what those folk have done, funded by hunting for the community. I think they're they're in the Eastern Cape, and uh, if if our memory uh, slips my mind exactly where. The Amy Bell Foundation, which was in fact started on one of their um, overseas hunting clients, the name of the daughter that had passed away from something, and the family started this funding model because they liked what they saw in in Africa and what the hunting was doing. They've built schools. They've built nursery schools. They've got feeding schemes going. Too fantastic to mention. That itself is, is warranting a program of its own. But all around the country are similar initiatives happening all the time. There's a vast amount of meat coming out of the system. Much of that meat, many hunters go and hunt more than what they personally can take home for their own family. But because the pleasure of hunting is such, they have a surplus. Nobody wastes a surplus in this country. Africa doesn't waste meat. This was the misnomer with trophy hunting. The animal writers put it out that an animal that's trophy hunted gets shot and only the head is cut off and put on a wall. I mean, that's total nonsense. What actually is happening is... Where an American comes in and shoots an animal, he, he can't take he, the meat. He can back. eat a little bit yeah, while he's in camp, and he, they do, and they love it. Back home, he's a meat hunter probably because he's hunting his elk or whatever else in the country he comes from. But yeah, that animal is almost invariably donated to very, very desperate causes, and it's a lot of meat, and it's ongoing, and it's very sustainable. Well, I can speak from personal experience. I I do a lot of hunting. I have a small family, so we we don't eat all of what. I shoot. My son is a hunter as well. But we have a basic principle that meat does not get wasted. And what we do is we support uh, a couple of churches and feeding schemes where that meat is gladly given to those organizations for distribution to people in need. Trophy hunting, last topic. Let's talk about that because it is a bad phrase. It's a swear word in many people's minds. Let's tell them, disabuse their minds about trophy hunting. Well, I hate boxes. You box a person is a trophy hunter or is a meat hunter or is a wing shooter. There are many different parts to hunting, but the underlying hunting, all hunters are more or less one of an ilk. The concept of trophy hunting, yes, the memento of the hunt is important to people. Whether that in actual fact is in fact a taxidermy job on an animal that you put on your wall or not is up to you. Whether you even if you just take a photograph, is that not a trophy? But at the end of the day, what is your driving forces is you want to be out in the country. So you want to be spending time with like-minded people or your family doing an activity that is so inherently uh, important to our psyche as hunters. Do families hunt together? You know, Martin, 
I've always said one thing. Your relationship with your father or your relationship down with your child in a hunting environment is completely different to all the other drivers of today. My kids are rugby players. My kids do other sports, cricket and whatnot, and they hunt with me. Our hunting relationship and our firearm relationship is more of a friendship and a kinship than a father and son relationship. It has a difference to when I'm discussing his sport or his cricket or whatever. And I think it's as a well, huge difference. I think as well an important point to note here is that handling a firearm requires a level of maturity and responsibility that many children are not exposed to. But if they are exposed to it, then they have to understand the responsibility that goes with it. And of course, killing an animal, as controversial as it may sound, it comes with responsibility as well. And that's part of the process, isn't it? I'll give you two words, discipline and profound. If you play with those two words in the hunting context, you've got to have a discipline and the activity is a profound activity. It means something. So really at the end of the day, whether you're shooting an animal for the pot or trophy hunting, there's not much difference. No difference at all. And and no animal that's trophy hunted doesn't finish up in the pot as well, by the way. And I want everyone listening to this to take to heart what Stephen has just said. And that is, if you take a photo or if you take the head, really it's taking a trophy. There's no difference. An important activity should be remembered. I've never had the means to hunt uh, on a grand scale. I've always hunted essentially with the meat harvest as a major driver in my particular case, simply for budgetary reasons. I've had to have that value added. Yet I've got a few trophies in my house that I'm particularly proud of because of the special memory of that animal, not because it was bigger than somebody else's, but because it might have been a first or whatever it was, the first time I hunted completely for myself, unassisted by a tracker or by a guard. That was for me a very special moment. I certainly kept that as a trophy. I'm going to end this discussion with an interesting titbit, a personal titbit, and some people may or may not like it, but um, I've had the opportunity to hunt a lion. And my wife did not want the trophy in our house. It ended up in our house. And even people who are completely opposed to lion hunting itself, when they saw the trophy, their first instinct was to touch the trophy, to feel the skin, the mane, the head, the ears. And I particularly found that the reaction of children was incredibly positive because they don't get that interaction with wildlife. They don't get to see and touch and feel animals in an urban environment. And on that note, thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Martin. It's been a pleasure. This is CliffCentral.com.